0: Welcome to the Michigan Minds podcast, a quick and informative analysis of today's top issues from University of Michigan faculty. This is part of a project that we call the Detroit Metro Area Community Study, and it goes by the name DMAX, um, which is the acronym. And we began the study in 2016, and uh, we've been doing it ever since. And the goal of the project, of the overall project, is to learn more about people in Detroit, their social economic circumstances, their health and well-being, and the ways in which they feel attached to their communities. And we want to collect data that we can also share with local stakeholders, people in, in government, people in nonprofits, people in the business community, and just residents writ large about the life experiences of Detroiters on a representative sample of people in Detroit. So... When the pandemic hit, we were already planning to do another survey. And we thought at that point we should pivot and really start asking questions that were pertinent to the pandemic. So we withdrew the survey that we were about to put out and we wrote a new one. And since then we've been trying to keep up a pretty rapid pace of doing surveys at least once a month. previously I would say we were doing two or three surveys a year about how people are experiencing the pandemic. So the new purpose of the of the study is to really study um, both the health and well-being and the socioeconomic circumstances that people are facing during the pandemic. This study builds on a legacy of research in Detroit at the University of Michigan that actually goes back to the early 1950s, 1951. And there was a project called the Detroit Area Study that existed In the Department of Sociology and also the Institute for Social Research. And it ran for over 50 years Uh, and ended in 2004. And the study has a great legacy. It also was a a way of training students in in the art and the science of survey research during the 1950s up through the early 2000s. And when I became the director of the Population Studies Center at ISR, which was I believe in 2012, Detroit was just going into bankruptcy, and there was a lot of talk about how it would be useful to have a study of Detroit, similar to the Detroit area study, to kind of figure out how people in the city are coping with the economic circumstances that was leading the city to go into bankruptcy. So I started thinking about what a new version of the Detroit area study would look like, and it took a few years. And I found a colleague, a fantastic colleague in the School of Public Policy, Liz Gerber, and she's been the co-lead of this study ever since with me. And what we decided to do was to kind of innovate a little bit on what the original aims of the Detroit area study were, but keep the main idea intact, which is to do at least one survey a year on a representative sample of the city. And one of the ways that we wanted to innovate was that we wanted this this study to be more useful to non-academics as well as academic researchers. So we wanted to provide information that could inform evidence-based decisions about investments in the city and policies that shape local communities. We also wanted to do more frequent surveys than just one per year. And another thing that we wanted to do was to expand outside the city to also survey people in the wider metro area so that we call ourselves now the Detroit Metro Area Community Survey. And we've met all of those goals except for the last one. We haven't yet expanded beyond the city. So we're still located only, we're only surveying people in the city of Detroit, but we have ambitions to hopefully bring this beyond Detroit at some point. One point I want to emphasize is that Survey research has changed tremendously since the Detroit area study began and I would say one of the biggest ways that it's changed in recent years is with the advent of online studies. A lot of surveys now are focusing on trying to survey as many people as they can get rather than a representative sample of the population. So you see a lot of polls and surveys online, that invite people to respond and pay them to respond and you see a lot of people now who kind of make a have like a side gig of resp- responding to surveys and making money through that and and for some purposes that can be fine but that's not what we wanted to do in Detroit we wanted to make sure that we proactively went after a representative sample of the population and gave voice to groups in the population that get underrepresented a lot in these kinds of surveys, perhaps because they're not comfortable going online or they have lower levels of literacy, or for whatever reason, they're just less active and less proactive about speaking up in in town hall settings. Like when we heard this a lot from politicians, like they wanted to hear not just from people who would show up at their town halls, but they want to hear from a representative sample of the population. So we went back to this old fashioned Science of survey sampling, and and got a list of households in the city, and picked a representative sample of those households. And we went about contacting them through a combination of of snail mail, um, knocking on doors, and also phone calls, and then electronic means, emails and text messages. And we ended up with a what what we think is a very scientifically valid representative sample of Detroiters. One more thing I'll say on this is that just before the pandemic hit, we had expanded our sample to 2,000 people in in the city of Detroit. And this turned out to be very fortuitous because we were not, once the pandemic hit and the economy started to shut down and the university imposed restrictions on face-to-face contact with human subjects, we could no longer go door-to-door. Uh, in fact, it was also harder to send out mailings to people, so we had to rely on, on electronic means, email, text messaging, and also phone calling to reach our respondents. And we were worried at first that we would that it might be harder to get, for example, older people in Detroit who are not comfortable getting online to respond to the survey. And uh, we were really heartened to see that we've gotten very high response rates. So from that about 60%, um, in fact, a little more than 60% of that group of 2,000 people who were responding to our survey before the pandemic have continued to respond to our survey. And that's, in the the world of surveys, 60% response rate is very high these days. So... We also still make efforts to try to proactively call people who we know don't like to respond to the survey online by themselves, so they have somebody who can run through it with them on the phone. I want to emphasize two or three themes I think that have come out of the work that we've done on the pandemic, and I I should also clarify that we've done two surveys so far since the pandemic hit, one of them in late March and early April, and the other one in late April and early May, and we're now preparing to do a third one that should go out into the field either this week or next week. Um, So the first thing that we found, which is perhaps not surprising, but it is well documented in our findings, is that the economic fallout of the pandemic is hitting disproportionately people who were most vulnerable before the pandemic. So to begin to illustrate that, I can talk about job loss. We estimate that the unemployment rate in Detroit increased more than fourfold since the start of the pandemic, and that it's now well north of 40%. Another way of looking at that is to say that of the people who were working before the pandemic, um, over 40%, we say our estimate is that 43% of Detroiters who were working before the pandemic have now lost their jobs. So the amount of job loss in Detroit has been staggering. Now, if you want to look at the glass half full instead of half empty, It is the case that about two-thirds of those job losses are from temporary leaves or furloughs, and those jobs could come back. But at least a third were just layoffs or firings that are less likely to come back. And we don't really know yet what the long-term damage of this is going to be, but the amount of disruption in the labor market is, is just simply staggering. It's also the case that people who had weaker attachments to the labor force and people of color were more likely to lose their jobs. 46% of of Blacks in Detroit who were working before the pandemic are now out of work, compared to only 15% of whites who were working before the pandemic. So we hear a lot about racial disparities in in mortality and in contracting the virus. And the point I'm trying to make is that there are also large racial disparities in the economic fallout of it pandemic. The first point is that the economic fallout is hitting disproportionately people who were most vulnerable before the pandemic. And one way of illustrating that is in the job loss numbers. Another way of illustrating that is in what I would call job flexibility, like the ability of people, for example, to work from home during the pandemic. And here there's some findings that if you look at the incomes of people before the pandemic, um, and and compare people at the lower and higher end of of that scale, you see great differences in the ability to work from home. So among people who were earning less than $30,000 per year before the pandemic, only 4% of them said that they could work from home. Whereas almost everybody who was earning, say, $100,000 or more before the pandemic, 99% were able to work from home. So this is Further evidence that the people whose work has been deemed, quote, essential and can't and, and, and have to go to work outside their home in order to stay employed or who simply lack the, the ability to work from home because of the nature of their job are coming from the most vulnerable parts of society, namely people who are earning less month, the least amount of money. So, uh, so there are great income disparities and ability to work outside the home. And what this all adds up to then is that there's a lot of concern about running out of money among Detroiters, and especially those who were earning less before the pandemic. Um, so we asked people, what do you think the likelihood is that you're going to run out of money the next three months? And the average Detroiter said that, that, that on a scale of zero to 100%, the average Detroiter said that there was about a 46% chance that they would run out of money. Not surprisingly, this number gets even higher among the most vulnerable groups and the groups that are most subject to job loss. So there's a lot of concern about running out of money. So the second big thing that we're finding is that these economic disruptions have a lot of consequences for people's lives in the way that they spend money or save money um, and also in their ability to put food on the table. In terms of household expenditures, I think this was another somewhat surprising finding from our study is that although a substantial number of people are spending less money and saving more during the pandemic, a roughly equal share of Detroiters are finding themselves actually having to spend more money during the pandemic. So the, the numbers shake out in a way that about uh, four, about 44% of Detroiters are. Are spending less during the pandemic, and 41% are spending more, and the rest are spending about the same amount as they were before the pandemic. So, why are some people spending more, and who are those people? First of all, those people are those who are earning less money, um, and they're also more likely to be people of color and more likely to be people who have lost their jobs. Why are they spending more? The reason that some Detroiters are finding that they have to spend more during the pandemic is that they have to buy more food and household supplies than they used to. And that could be because they have more people staying with them. It could also be because they have kids who were getting school lunches and sometimes breakfast that are, that are now having to eat from home. And it's also the case that when they go shopping for food and household supplies, they're facing higher prices and they're less able to go to different stores to bargain shop. They're, they're, they're having to settle for whatever the prices are at the first store that they went to and and, and having less shopping mobility as you might call it. So for all these reasons, there are a lot of families in Detroit that are having to spend more during the pandemic. And that also results in more debt. And we're also finding some evidence of that, that these same families who are spending more are accumulating more debt than they say is manageable. And this could have really severe long-term consequences and we're also seeing that a lot of these families are trying to defer payment on on their monthly bills um, on on water on electricity also on their on their rent or their mortgage whatever they're paying so this gives us concern that the economic fallout of the pandemic is is not likely to go away as people go back to work immediately that uh, these problems are are, are going to be potentially more long term because people have more debt that they've accumulated. And also, for the most part, people have been kind of sheltered from some other economic impacts because there's been a moratoria on rent and mortgages in Detroit. So if if you have fallen behind on your rent or your mortgage, you don't face the threat of eviction um, or foreclosure. Those could go away fairly soon. Um, And also people have said that they're not that concerned about transportation right now because they haven't needed to get out of their house too much to go places. But once the economy begins to reopen, you could see transportation become a problem, especially for people who are reliant on public transportation, where the risk of contracting the virus could be a lot higher if you have to take the bus all the time. So there are new concerns that could be introduced that could kind of multiply with these consequences of the economic fallout that we're seeing that make me think that the consequences are going to be much more long term for Detroit. And one last point I want to raise about this is food insecurity. that about a quarter of the population in Detroit are facing what we would call a situation of food insecurity, meaning that they're concerned that they're not that they're going to run out of food or that they don't have enough to eat right now. Um, and that's just a, another kind of vivid illustration of the, the collateral consequences of this economic fallout is hunger. The vast majority of people feel like the pandemic is a serious problem both for them, and for other people in their community. But when you look at the individual risk of fearing that you're gonna contract the virus, that is much lower. Um, I would say, I I think we asked again, on a scale of zero to 100%, what do you think is the chance that you're gonna contract the virus? And the average Detroiters said 34%. So, and and that's dropped a little bit over time since our first survey. So I, I, I would characterize it as saying that Not a lot of people think that they're gonna get the virus right now, but they realize that the consequences of getting it are very severe, both for them and for other members of their community. Most Detroiters know somebody who who has already had the virus. 59% of the people in our sample said that they knew somebody else who has already had the virus. And perhaps more strikingly, 39% of Detroiters say that they know somebody who's died from COVID-19. Either a friend or a loved one, so we we know that the death rate is really high in Detroit, and that Detroit has been a hot spot of of the, of the pandemic. I just wanted to point out how few degrees of separation there are between people who have died and 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 the, and the broader population of Detroit. That, that over a third of Detroiters have somebody in their life who's already died from, from the pandemic. So the consequences are quite serious, and even though people may not think that their individual chances of contracting the virus are that high. They're very aware of the, the broader consequences of the pandemic for their community. I've already talked about some of the things that people in Detroit are worried about, um, the consequences of the pandemic, for example, being able to put food on the table, um, being they're concerned about running out of money. We ask people about a whole list of things that they might be concerned about. And one thing that jumped out at us is that the ability to interact with other people and, or the inability to interact with other people during the pandemic was one of the biggest concerns that people reported. Um, Even above uh, concerns about having a place to live, having adequate healthcare, getting medication, having um, transportation, is you find that most people are saying that this is a challenge not being able to interact with other people. And I think it just speaks to the fact, it's not that these other things are unimportant, it's that human beings need to interact with one another. And um, sometimes we forget that, but I think the pandemic has really reminded us that this is a challenge for a lot of people. And it also has consequences for mental health. Overall, we hope that people in positions of authority, both in terms of like protecting public health and People in government who can do something about the economic circumstances are aware of the potential long-term economic fallout of the pandemic. And the idea that although it's important to reopen the economy and that a lot of people are hurting because the economy is closed, that simply reopening the economy is unlikely to be enough to put people back on stable economic footing, that they need more financial support, and that this support probably has to come from all levels of government, starting with the federal government, the, the stimulus checks that have already gone out, and the expansion of unemployment insurance is a start, but uh, we still are not seeing a lot of people who are getting that support, and that support not, does not seem to be enough right now to be able to put people on stable economic footing. So probably above all, that's the biggest thing that we want to communicate, is that um, that, that the city as a whole is is in pretty dire economic circumstances. Another thing that I think it's helpful for people to know is that people really are taking this seriously and that they are changing their behaviors accordingly. That a very high percentage of people report that they have been socially distancing, that they've been wearing masks out in public and been taking other measures that public health officials are urging people to take. So when we asked how safe it was to to do different <laughs> Things that involve public interaction, we still find that a lot of people feel like it is unsafe to be in large groups of people, to be dining in at restaurants, to be using equipment at public places like playgrounds um, and rec centers, to be touching doorknobs and countertops and other places where you could contract the virus. So people are really taking this seriously. And yet we cannot conclude from our data that there's been any negligence of the population that has led to the high rates of contraction of of COVID-19 and mortality, that people are socially distancing, people are taking a lot of proper steps that public health officials are urging. Um, And it's despite all this that the virus still has become so prevalent in Detroit. As I said at the beginning, we're trying to share our findings as widely as we can. Um, We're definitely trying to partner with, with people in government agencies and nonprofits we're trying to make evidence-based decisions about um, the policies and investments that that can help change people's lives. So, people in government, for sure, people in nonprofits, and I think just local community residents also want to know how they and, and their neighbors are doing during this time during the pandemic. So, we're trying our best to publicize it in venues like this, but also um, by Getting it, getting the word out to the media, and by also sharing our findings directly with people in government and um, and with local stakeholders. One thing is that people really have appreciated being asked about their circumstances and their and their views on what's on how Detroit is is reacting during the pandemic. So we're finding a lot of people who really like participating in this. There also may be some signs that people are beginning to adapt to what, what everybody's calling the new normal. For example, there's been a slight drop in the amount of depressive symptoms that people are experiencing from our first survey to our second survey. There's been a slight decline in the people who fear that they're going to run out of money in the next three months. Um, we're going to continue to track these numbers and see whether the situation does improve in some ways, uh, um, despite what I think are the long-term economic consequences of the, of the pandemic. But I still think that the main takeaway is that the economic fallout is hitting everybody, but it's, it's especially hitting the people that were most vulnerable for the pandemic. Thank you for listening to the Michigan Minds podcast, a production of the University of Michigan. Join the conversation on social media with hashtag UMishImpact.